Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for High Velocity Radio. Lee Cantor here, another episode of High Velocity Radio, and this is going to be a good one. Today on the show, we have Jacob Foss with AgriCycle Global. Welcome, Jacob. Thanks for having me, Lee. Well, I'm excited to learn what you're up to. Tell us a little bit about AgriCycle Global. How are you serving folks? Yeah, absolutely. So AgriCycle's mission, first and foremost, is to eradicate extreme poverty. We, we noticed a few years back when we started the company that areas below the extreme poverty line also had these extreme abundances of natural resources and could be wealth if it was tapped into correctly. There's just no market opportunity, infrastructure, or technology to capitalize. So we created those and created a training mechanism for women, smallholders, and youth in sub-Saharan Africa to transform their mangoes, for instance, into dried mangoes or their coconut shells into a sustainable charcoal or their cassava flour, banana flour that would go to waste into flowers that we can sell all around the world. So we're uh, injecting socioeconomic opportunities and sequestering methane and carbon emissions from sub-Saharan Africa. So... um... How do you define extreme poverty? Because, um, you know, for folks in America, that might look and feel a little different than it does in sub-Saharan Africa. Right, exactly. So the definition is uh, below $1.90 of income per day. So those living on less than that is the extreme poverty line. So now is there an equivalent to, to folks in the United States? Um, I mean, it doesn't translate exactly like that. So you can kind of just think, I mean, things are a little more affordable in the areas that they would be living like this uh, just because of that income. But um, I mean, you can kind of think of just $2 a day. That's that's basically the living standard. Um, so now, how did you target sub-Saharan Africa as your uh, kind of place to begin this? Yeah, so we, we had a... So the United Nations FAO uh, has metrics on how much harvest of staple crops are, are available each year. And so kind of taking that along with connections we had, we saw there was a huge opportunity there, but the income was just not being generated. Nothing was being capitalized off of. So we started with some NGOs, local connections, women's groups, and then worked our way up uh, national governments, United Nations, food and agriculture organization, things like that to kind of establish ourselves. But that initial entry was just uh, connections we made uh, while seeing an opportunity to enter. So now um, in the sub-Saharan Africa area, there's, like you said, there's resources there. How are they being kind of used? Is this stuff that's being thrown out or wasted or not um, kind of leveraged in any way? And the, they're just, they like you see it as assets and they see it as just stuff? Exactly. So I'll give you an example here of, of mangoes, for instance, in northern Uganda. We think of mangoes go to the grocery store, $2, maybe $3, depending on the season. Each mango in a community we work in in northern Uganda sells for less than one cent per mango. So women go, they carry 50 mangoes on their head, maybe a mile or two to market. They try to sell those. And the market is so saturated. Middlemen are everywhere. They're called coyotes, kind of just exploiting this labor. So we eliminate the middlemen and generate income about 20 times the value of those mangoes for them by training them how to dry them. So we purchase the dried value added crop, but typically those women come to market, maybe 10% of them can actually sell their mangoes for that one cent. 
for mango and the rest just dump it on the side of the road because they have so much waiting for them at home because the market is so saturated and harvest. You can, you can't eat it all and you can't sell it all. And then, so you're giving them another activity to use the same assets that they're kind of have an abundance and then giving them another kind of revenue stream out of them. Exactly. Yeah. So we train them on the value addition and then we inject the um, opportunity for that income stream. So a revenue stream they don't otherwise have exactly. So now when you go into these places and you explain this, is this something that is like a big light bulb? Oh, wow. We're sitting on gold here. This is going to change our lives. Or are they skeptical or are they distrustful? Yeah, it's a great question. We When we go in, they're usually skeptical. Uh, the major reason being all these failed developmental models come in giving these false promises and it's either for their own good or they just don't listen to the locals well enough to have a sustainable success story. We come in and we spent, when we first started, kind of back to an earlier question, we worked with women's groups for up to six months before we even did anything, just developing that trust, making sure this is what they wanted. So sometimes it takes months and months to not convince them, but just work with them to reach a conclusion where, yes, we both want to do this. Sometimes they don't want to, and we're not going to force anything on anyone. We try to explain the merits of it, but sometimes it just doesn't catch. So usually it takes some early adopters that benefit from it, go through the training, now have this value-added income, and then their community members, surrounding communities see that and go, oh, wow, they ask questions to the locals, and then that's kind of how it grows. And uh, so then when it does grow, does it like one person in a community kind of is that early adopter? And then does it kind of grow in the way that in America, like, uh, you know, these kind of things launch, you get the early adopters, then you you move slowly into the mainstream. You get somebody that's a fast follower and then you just keep expanding. Does that work in a similar manner? Yeah, similar. I would I would translate the early adopters to maybe a group of women. It's not always one person. Sometimes it's that first person to take the leap, but we target women's groups. Uh, maybe there are savings groups that already existed. And then we mobilize them, train them, bring them on. And then that's who sets the example for maybe another women's group, or sometimes it's an NGO, a, a development organization that has connections. Then we work with them to reach their farmers. Um, it really depends on kind of the the entry opportunity, but yeah, typically it's, it's, it can be thought of very similar line. Now, um, do you, are you at a stage where there is a track record of success where there are kind of those success stories that you can share? Yeah, definitely. So we've had a few like Instagram live opportunities with some of the women that uh, come on and tell about how many children they've been able to send to school. Uh, we have metrics for the environmental side of carbon and methane sequestration. We have over 10,000 women in our network that we're injecting up income for, creating livelihoods, trying to lift them above that extreme poverty line. Um, in general, with our dried fruit, we can inject seven times their daily local wage. So that has been the, the metric that's been most important to us. And just in general, we're still collecting those metrics and we'll have um, you know, videos and, and media and all of these testimonials, if you will, just to kind of share that story and share the impact that can be had if you work and listen with the local population. So now, like from a practical standpoint, how does that impact that woman or their family or their village? Yeah, so there's a number of different ways. Um, educationally, most families can't afford secondary school, what we think of as middle and high school. Um, 
primary school sometimes as far as they can go. And then if you are able to afford secondary school, high school, then you can go on to, to college, which is, is pretty rare for these areas. So that is something that reaching secondary, reaching high school and college is a huge uh, metric we're trying to obtain. And then something as simple as putting protein on the table. Sometimes it's just staple crops, their maize, their rice is all it's able to afford. Sometimes it's skipping meals. So getting you know three meals a day or whatever they're wanting to eat with some protein, whether it's animal or plant protein, that's another metric that you know we kind of take for granted, I would say, as in general. And then um, others, business opportunities that once they get income, that lays the foundation for them. We help them establish lines of credit and business assets with banks. And then once they're banking, they can maybe they want to do tie and dye or batik, or maybe they want to be a seamstress. They can apply for a loan for um, that machine to, to be a seamstress, and then they can create their own income. So those are a few different examples of where it's going. So now have you found that some of the folks that are kind of early in on this and have seen some success, are they kind of then going into like the next level and getting these kind of tapping into maybe some of the micro lender programs and then building kind of their own little empire where they're at? Yeah, yeah, some do. And it's so it's so exciting to see that um, some have been working us with us for a few years now and, and have put themselves in a position where they can. We have some good microfinance partners who, exactly as you described, are able to give them that opportunity. And, and some just want to stay with the income we're given because it's, um, it's fairly simple work once they get the hang of it. And we, we continually train them and provide them with more opportunities. So it, it really varies. Uh, some want to stay and some want to definitely go and do their other venture. So so now is AgriCycle's role um, kind of helping them monetize their resources or coming up with a, a different kind of, okay, you have the mango, now we move on to some other thing. And then you just have kind of a portfolio of brands that are serving, you know, helping those folks, you know, kind of maximize their resources. Yeah. So it starts with where, whatever they can harvest. So as you mentioned, mango, dried fruits, there's those seasons that they tap into and they want to sell those to us because they get premium income from. One of the reasons we started these additional brands is for year round income instead of just seasonal. So that's where the tropical ignition, the coconut charcoal. So they'll, they can collect their coconut shells, which is just a wasted product otherwise. And their palm kernel shells, same thing. And they can sell to us and those are pretty much year round. Those are continually grown. Then if it's areas, we have a portfolio of ingredients of over 150 ingredients. So cassava flour, sweet potato flour, coconut, uh, green banana flour, those add additional, those are grown year round for the most part. So that's an additional revenue stream that um, some of this only takes a few hours per day. So they can even continue their main farming or their main, their main income. Then this is supplemental on top of what they are already doing. So we like to be able to give them the opportunity to have multiple streams of income. So now how do you kind of manage the supply chain? So you have them doing this kind of work, but how do you kind of move it? So it eventually gets to where the person is paying retail. Definitely. So that is one of the things we've invested in most our vertically integrated supply chain we have. So that just means all of our ingredients are funneling into one supply chain instead of, so we have the three brands, all of them go into that same, you can think of it as a transportation line. Instead of paying three different trucks, we can have one truck take three different brands and types of ingredients. So that allows us to cut costs on our end, cut environmental damage with just one truck. And then we can, you know, increase even further income to these farmers. 
So once it takes it from, say, farm gates and the microprocessors, we call them, those drying the fruit, for instance, we purchase from them, then we take it to our pack house in Kenya, if it's the dried fruit, or if it's our flour, we take it to our milling facility. And so everything is finalized in East Africa, um, whether it's the bulk flowers or the CPG products, the charcoal and the dried fruit. And then from there, we ship it to Chicago, where's our fulfillment center. And then we fulfilled client orders. So everything's completed in East Africa. And then we simply just put it on a, on a ship and then transport it to wherever the end destination is. And then it comes to America at some point and then gets distributed from there. Yeah. Whether it's retail or e-commerce or distributor, whatever it might be, then we distribute from Chicago. Yep. So what do you need more of? How can we help? Yeah. Um, it's always the biggest thing is connections to business for sales. That's by far and away the biggest. Uh, second would be awareness, just spreading the word, seeing there's these CPG and e-commerce opportunities. We're in a couple hundred stores across the US. We're on uh, e-commerce platforms with our websites, even on Amazon. Um, Jolly Fruit Co. is the dried fruit, Tropical Ignitions, the charcoal, and then uh, Field Better is the business-to-business flower. So sales connections and just connect uh, awareness is definitely the biggest things we need right now and just spreading the story. So now when you say business connection, so like you want uh, like a retailer to sell the mangoes or, or whatever, the dried fruit, like so, so somebody who's selling dried fruit, you want to be one of the choices of that's for sale that, I mean, that's all you're looking for from that standpoint is just more people to choose your product over whatever they're picking now. Yeah, intros to getting on the shelves um, for the ingredient line, you know, restaurants that might want a more sustainable flour for their uh, for their goods, bakeries that might want more impactful flour for, for their cupcakes, cakes, brownies, whatever it might be. Um, and then, you know, even even sports teams who, who might want a, a giveaway for opening day of whatever season it might be, baseball season, they're grilling out with our charcoal, doing tailgating, things like that. So any type of opportunity uh, that we can be fairly flexible on. We just love to, to spread the impact. Good stuff. Well, congratulations on all the success and um, you're doing amazing work and we appreciate you. Thank you. Lee. really appreciate that. So now the main website is agricycleglobal.com. Yep. And then That's from right. there, they can find all the individual brands. Exactly. You can navigate from there. All right. Well, Jacob, thank you again for sharing your story. You're doing important work and we appreciate you. Thank you so much. All right. This is Lee Cantor. We will see you all next time on High Velocity Radio.